Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, my friends. I am having technical difficulties here at home, not at Blog Talk Radio, but my phone, my landline isn't working, so I'm on my cell phone, and I hope I come through clearly because I know when you're on a cell phone versus on landline, there could be static on the line, so I'm hoping I'm coming through strong. Uh, and I feel strong, and I feel good, so that's a good thing. On this sunny, sunny Saturday, September the 14th, man, you better enjoy these days, and I mean every moment because this time is getting by. It's already the middle of September, and I feel like I just said it was the first day of September, and we're already halfway through the month. I want to welcome all of you to Blog Talk Radio's Off the Shelf, but it's glorious, glorious, gorgeous, beautiful Saturday, September the 14th of 2013. And I thank you, thank you for joining us here this morning. I have to always thank our loyal listeners. Ten years, you guys. Ten years, and I didn't even set out to be a radio host. <laughs> it just happened almost like what you call a fluke in ten years. I have so enjoyed being with all of you. I don't even have to go out and get interviews anymore. That's been years. People just keep coming, and I say months, booked months in advance. I just have to thank our loyal listeners and our wonderful guests that have shared. If I had to write down all the tips and advice that have been shared for free on Off the Shelf, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it. So I want to thank all our loyal listeners and our wonderful guests and I want to also introduce myself to you. I'm your host, Denise Turney, for those who are tuning in for the first time, and welcome to you here to Off the Shelf. As always say, I'm coming to you live from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I encourage you, don't let another day pass. Go get a copy of my new book. Love put over me. You're not going to make me rich by getting a copy of the book. So if you say, well, she sold so many, and I don't want to make her rich, that that is not what's going to happen because her ebook is just $3.03. You can get mystery and romance and friendship. You, you're just going to get so much entertainment, but it's the relationship. I cannot stress this enough. It's a book about relationships. And you can see how we all evolve and change. You're either going to refuse to change and stay where you are, but I don't think anybody can really stay where you are. You're going to end up regressing, or you're going to go forward. You're going to let go, trust, and start to advance, change, evolve, and move forward. And you can see what happens to these characters and love pour over me and which one of them chooses to do what and what happens to their lives as the book evolves. There is just so much excitement in the book and so much lessons of how love works and love pour over me. And you can pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me today any online or offline retailer, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, eBook, at Walmart, you name it. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it, and they can get a copy for you because Love Pour Over Me is kept by the largest uh, book distributors in the world. And now I'm going to go and see if our special guest has joined us, and she has not. So uh, I did confirm that she was going to be on today, and her publicist reached out to me to schedule this interview, and she was like the second interview the publicist reached out to. I, I, one thing I tell people is when you make appointments, whether it's for a, a media appearance or what it is, write it down on your schedule because I find so many people are very excited and eager to reach out and schedule an interview, but then when the actual interview comes, it's like, did you write it down? Did you remember? So I, I find that that can happen. Write things down. If you really want to do something, whether it's a, a job interview or whatever it is, write it down so that you remember it and, and you don't forget. That being said, I, I, until our guest does join, because I don't know what has happened, uh, and I always like to not assume the worst, so I don't have no idea what's happened. We had a guest come, was on off the shelf once, and she dialed in late because she caught a flat tire. She was actually on the highway, and uh, I, I, I always, in any situation, like to leave it open to, I don't know everything. None of us does. Uh, 
We have no idea why somebody was late or didn't show up. You know, if it's a pattern with a person, that's one thing. But if it's not, then you don't know. You have you have absolutely no reason. So I just I keep them in prayer and, and wish the best for them. But uh, what I wanted to say was, when you say you want something, and it's so easy, and I catch myself doing this, and curious if you catch yourself doing this, you say you want something. It could be a job, a relationship, to lose weight, get become fit, whatever it is. That eagerness first is is there. That excitement, that energy. I want, I want this thing. I want this job. I want fill in the blank. But then somehow I don't know if it is that we expect things to just magically appear, to magically happen, because when it comes time to actually take the action to cause the thing to come about. Sometimes we don't we don't really follow through. Then we start making excuses why we can't take the action. So as an example, if you say, oh, I really want a job because really when you follow that back, you want the money to be able to do things that you think are going to make you feel happy, the things you think that are going to make you not so stressed, like not so stressed that a bill collector is calling. That's really what you want. You want the peace and what you think. It's going to make you so happy. And so you say, getting a job will do that because it will give me the regular money to be able to buy those things uh, or to be able to take a vacation or be able to go visit someone. So, uh, But really it's the happiness and the peace you want. And so you say the job is the way to get there. But then you're excited about the ideal that comes. Aha, now I know how to get the things I want. Now I know how to uh, be able to travel when I want. I'll get a job. So you're excited with this ideal that showed up. But when now the ideals come to take some action, to start searching for jobs, to start researching companies, to start maybe cold calling some companies and, and letting them know about your skill set and what are they looking for, that excitement starts to wane. It just goes down. I don't know why that happens to us. A wonderful idea comes, we're excited. The minute the another idea comes to show us how to bring that thing we want about, the excitement can wane. And then I wonder, do you really want it? Or do you just want it to magically appear? Do you just want to be able to say a prayer, fast, or read scriptures, or whatever you do, meditate, and it just magically show up? That's generally how things work in this world. So the idea comes, you're excited, then something else comes, and it was you what to do to get that. Keep that excitement up and, and and take those take those steps. And do your homework. Do your research. If you're applying for a job with a new company and they say the interview is on Thursday at two o'clock. Don't just wait for Thursday at two o'clock to come and, and, and make the interview, although that's better than you not writing it down and forgetting and you don't you're not even there for the call. Now you miss the opportunity that may never come back. They never, I can't stress this enough to people, get it out of your head that an opportunity is is going to come around again. Please get that out of your head. You may never see the same opportunity ever again, ever. So when it shows up the first time, take it. If it's right, if it's right, every opportunity is not right, but if it's right, take it. That opportunity, you may never see that opportunity Ever, ever, ever again. So don't tell yourself it's going to swing around again. Oh, I missed it. I missed that train. It'll come back around. It, you may never see that train again. So, and and the fact that you missed that, whatever your dream was, you may just have crippled it. So take those opportunities when they come. So you say you want a job again. The ideal for a way to get money to do the things you think are going to make you happy and bring you peace that you. Think, Will, something, idea, go get a job. Now you start doing your homework, researching companies. Stay excited while you're taking the steps to get what you you want. You, you research in your companies. You get an interview scheduled. Again, I use the example Thursday at 2 o'clock. Don't not be there. Don't not be there on Thursday at 2 o'clock. Be there on Thursday at 2 o'clock. So, so, so do that. And then... Um, do your research. You don't just show up for the interview and the employer asks or the recruiter, hiring manager, et cetera. Tell me what you know about our firm. And all you know is the name of the company. That's not good. 
do some research. Find out when the company was founded. Find out about their culture. Find out about their senior management. Find out about what the company does. And then also have a list of questions that you want to ask. What do you expect of the role? What, what, just ask some questions about uh, the position that you're applying for so that the person can tell you, you did some work. You're not just trying to go anywhere and get money. You, you want to work at this company for a reason. And then that lets them know that there's a, maybe a strong likelihood that you'll stay. That you'll stay because people don't want to hire people and turn their, their workforce into a revolving door. So that I, I share with you. Don't let opportunities pass you by. And with things like this happen, this is one, one thing here at Off the Shelf with guests. I don't charge a fee, and I get publicists who reach out to me all the time. Uh, like to schedule an interview with so-and-so, and then I get have artists reach out to me directly themselves and business people will reach out to me. And I'm, I, I very, very seldom turn someone away. Very, very seldom. I do sometimes, but it's seldom that I do. But it just, it amazes me how much energy we have at the beginning of something. And then when it comes time to really bring it to fruition, we just don't have the same follow-through. That, that, that amazes me. And uh, to really get what you want, I, I tell you, you're going to have to follow through all the way. You can't just be excited at the beginning of something, the beginning of a relationship, the start of a job, whatever. You're going to have to stay with it the whole way if you, if you really want to get something out of it. You're going to have to stick with it all the way through. What I'm going to do now, I'm, I'm a person about moving on. <laughs> and anybody who's listening to Off the Shelf knows that I'm, I, I'm, I don't let things stop me. I just keep it moving. And I often, when I remember the first time that a guest either was late or didn't show up, I thought, well, should I cancel the show? Then I thought, no, I'm not, because I don't, I don't want to let events and circumstances dictate what I do. And, and what comes about. So, uh, and, and I want to encourage you, off-the-shelf listeners, to do the same in your life because things will happen that you don't see coming and things will happen that you may not want. But you have to decide, wh- what is the ultimate thing I want? And with off-the-shelf, I always like to share valuable tips and advice with our listeners, things that people who tune in to off-the-shelf can take and it somehow helped them in their own lives, even if when they hear it, it seemingly means nothing to them. And maybe months later, they'll go, aha. That's the type of things I like to provide here on Off the Shelf. So what I'm going to do today, I'm going to share tips and also do read some excerpts from my new book, Love Call Over Me. And, and the book begins, and I'm actually looking here at the very start of Love Call Over Me, uh, this is the um, the page where I got some reader comments and people talking about the book. And one of the names on, on this page is Carolyn Rogers. See how things work? She has an event that comes out at, um, I want to say it's in Brooklyn, New York. She is a, a co-founder of CMB Books in their online. Her name is Carolyn Rogers. Again, she's co-founder of CMB Books. I haven't planned to do this at all. But she has a book festival. I think it's in in Brooklyn, and I believe it's this month in September. How did this shit happen now? Uh, and she also has a newspaper, and she advertises, you know, authors, books, and whatever ads you want to put in her newspaper, and I think it goes out to over a 1,000 people. The, the, this community newspapers you see that people give out in the convenience stores and different shops in the community that people read through, whether it's sitting in the beauty salon or just at home with spare time, that type of a newspaper. Uh, and it's, it, because people do read it when they're, like, in the beauty salon or at, waiting for a pizza at the restaurant, people actually will read the material and could, could see your ad. So that's what Carolyn Rogers does at CMB Books. And her name just happened to be there on the front of Love for Over Me. And so I thought of her, and I do know, I think she does that book uh, in Brooklyn uh, Festival. I think it's twice a year. I think she does 
two things twice a year. One might be more educational, like informative for new authors, and she has writers come and do seminars. And the other one I think is more like a book festival where you can actually come and meet the book authors and, you know, get an autograph book. Again, I think that's in September, and it's CMB Books, and they are on the website. So that's something for authors who are listening to Off the Shelf or just book lovers or just people who want something to do in the community, you can go over to CMB Books and check them out for that event in September. I'm going to check again, going in and out of my, my studio to see if the guest has arrived because I definitely, she is a phenomenal guest that we had today. Phenomenal. She's a former model, uh, a very, very good guest. And if we can't get her on the day, get her publicist reached out, hopefully that we could get her on tomorrow. But I can't stress again, when you start something, stick with it, follow through, check up, check in until it comes to completion. And it was a publicist who reached out. So uh, I would hope that she was the one who was keeping all the ends tied up. I always follow up with our guest a few days before the show, and I got confirmation she would be here. So that's on the publicist. Uh, I wasn't working directly with uh, the person who was going to be on the show. But on Love Will Over Me, there's a scripture on here. And the scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Whether you believe in the scriptures or not, uh, I don't think anybody would devalue love. And the scripture is, again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. And now these three remain Everything, we realize the stuff we used to believe, as we see now from things we see that our, some of our elders believe, we know it was nonsense. Even more, as the human race continues to awaken, we'll see certain things we still believe that are nonsense. And it says, after we've let all this nonsense go, the things we still believe are true, that we'll come to years, maybe thousands of years later, who knows how long, We'll know it's not you, and we'll let it go. It says, and now these three remain. And I'm thinking after after we let go of hate and prejudice and, and racism and sexism, after we realize how nonsense it is, and as a human race we let it all go, it says, and now these three remain. There's three things still here. After we've let all this other stuff go, we've gotten through it in like the United States, slavery, just different things we let go. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. After we get through all, all of the rest, all of our life experiences, and we finally come to it, awakening to know what even makes sense and matters and what doesn't. Those three are last. And the greatest of them is love, which is the thing I believe was here at the very, very start. <laughs> the alpha and omega from the very, very start. You let all the nonsense go, just Three going to be left. And the greatest of them is love. And so that is the scripture that goes with love pour over me. And I've read some of these um, intro to the book before and I've on other radio shows and I was actually the one being interviewed. And readers love this excerpt, but I it's the ending. I don't want to read the ending of love pour over me and some of the middle scenes that give away too much in the story. Uh, I do enjoy and love this story. And I I, I would love to know if anybody could read it and not be changed themselves. I really would. Um, Just just to see the changes in the characters. And one character, the star character, Raymond Clark, I think, you know, somebody told me something happened to Raymond later. They were very upset. (laughs) In in, in the novels I've written People don't like when they Like a character When anything Bad might happen to the person They just don't like it Uh, When somebody they don't like And as a writer I'm telling you I've seen this so clearly It shocked 
me with um, one of my books, I Love As Many Faces. It shocked me. And that book is sold out. It's sold out. Uh, it, but it shocked me um, the reaction of the people. When people care about a character or a person, they don't want anything bad to happen to them. When people don't like a person or a character, there is not enough bad that could happen to them. That is shocking to me. And somehow we've we've got to get beyond that, and we will, because we know that only three are going to remain. And hate and jealousy and envy, those are going to go away. They're, they're not going to remain. And that's good news. But I want to start with the very beginning of Love Pour Over Me. I'm going to read to you um, the, this the first chapter from the book. And this is chapter one. And it starts, and I don't want to share some tips and advice uh, with with you, our listeners. It starts, chapter one, it was Friday afternoon, June 15th, 1984. Raymond Clark, my man Raymond, <laughs> and women readers love Raymond. Raymond Clark lay across his bed. An empty bowl of popcorn was on the floor, snacking did little to ease his excitement. In less than three hours, his year-round efforts to prove himself deserving of unwavering acclaim would be validated in front of hundreds of his classmates. Tonight was his high school graduation, the day he had dreamed about for weeks. He knew his grades were high enough to earn him academic honors. Even more than his grades were his athletic achievements. He hadn't been beaten in a track race in three years, he won the state half mile and mile run for the last six years since he was in middle school. People would cheer wildly for him tonight. The television was turned up loud. Carl Lewis threatens to break Bob Beeman's historic long jump record at the Olympic trials in Los Angeles this weekend, an ESPN sportscaster announced. Beeman's record has stood for 16 years. Lewis, Raymond got so caught up in the mention of the upcoming Olympic Games that he didn't hear the front door open. Ray, his father Malcolm shouted as soon as he entered the house. What? Raymond leaped off his bed and hurried into the living room. Dad, what? Boy, if you don't get your junk, Raymond watched his father wave his hand over the sofa, the place where he'd thrown his sports bag as soon as he got home from graduation practice at school. Get this sports crap up, Raymond growled. Malcolm growled. Silence filled the house. Raymond grabbed his sports bag and carried it into his bedroom and tossed it across his bed. His father exited the living room and entered the kitchen. Like a dark shadow, frustrations from spending 10 hours working at a drab automobile plant where he drilled leather seats in a one Ford Mustang after another while his line supervisor stood at his shoulder and barked, Focus, Malcolm, get your production up. Followed him there. It was in the furrow of his brow in the pinch of his lip. Ray, Raymond cursed beneath his breath before he left his bedroom and hurried into the living room. Seconds later, he stood in the kitchen's open doorway. He watched his father toss an envelope on the table. A letter from Baker came in the mail. Something about you getting some awards when he reached to the center of the table for a bottle of still fervor. He stopped hiding the alcohol when Raymond turned five. The alcohol looked like liquid gold. Felt that way to Malcolm, too. He graduate tonight. Malcolm took a long swig of the whiskey and squinted against the burn. He la- tried to laugh but only coughed up spleen. You're probably the only kid in the whole school who got a ladder like this. Everybody up at Baker knows nobody cares about you. Ladder said they thought, I don't want to tell all your relatives. Let all your relatives know you're getting some awards so they come out and support you. Again, Malcolm worked at laughter but instead coughed a dry, scratchy cough. It went long and raw through his throat. We both know ain't nobody going to be there but me, and you're sorry. Don't mean nothing anyhow. They're just giving these diplomas and awards away nowadays. On his way out of the kitchen, bottle in hand, he shoved the ladder against Raymond's chest. Raymond listened to his father's footsteps go heavy up the back stairs while he stood alone in the kitchen. I want to stop and see if the guest has arrived, and she has not. Um, Raymond listened to his father's footsteps go heavy up the back stairs while he stood alone in the kitchen. When the footsteps became a whisper, he looked down at the ladder. It was printed on good stationery, the kind Baker High School only used for special occasions. 
didn't matter, though. Raymond took the ladder and ripped it once, twice, three times, over and over again, till it was only shreds of paper. Then he walked to the tall waste kitchen wastebasket next to the gas stove and dropped the bits inside. Ray, he froze. From the sound of his father's voice, he knew he was at the top of the stairs. Give me that ladder so I'll remember to go to your graduation tonight. Raymond twisted his mouth at the foulness of the request, the absolute absurdity of it. He didn't answer. Instead, he turned and walked back inside his bedroom. He grabbed his house keys and headed outside. At the edge of the walkway, he heard his father shout, Ray! Raymond didn't turn around. He broke down the tree-lined sidewalk the way he'd learned to walk since kindergarten with his head down. He stepped over crazed cracks in his worn sidewalk, turned away from boarded windows of two empty, dilapidated buildings, and told himself the neighborhood was just like his father, old, useless, unforgiving, and hard. A second-floor window back at the house went up. Malcolm stuck his head all the way out the window. Get your ass back here, he hollered down the street. Raymond sprang to his toes and started to run. His muscular arms and legs went back and forth through the cooling air like propellers, like they were devices he used to try to take off, leave the places in his life he wished had never been. It was what he was good at. All his running had earned him high honors in track and field. He was Ohio's top mauler. He made Sports Illustrated four times since middle school. Ray, yo, man, you better go back. Joey chuckled as Raymond slowed to a stop. Joey, a troubled 18-year-old neighbor who dropped out of school in the 10th grade, leaned across a Pontiac sunboard, sunbird, waxing his hood. You don't go back, your man's going to teach your ass good. Uh, Ray's cool, standing an equally troubled 21-year-old who pissed on school and failed to get a diploma, a man who couldn't read beyond the third grade level, said. He stood next to Joey. His hands were shoved to the bottoms of his pants pockets. And we know the brother can run. Damn, we all can run, Stanley laughed. Raven, remember the night we ran away from that Texaco station? Our wallets all fat, Joey laughed. He talked so loudly, Raymond thought he'd be overheard. Thought we agreed to let that go, Raymond said. He looked hard at Joey, then he looked hard at Stanley, and the nine-month-old deal was resealed. Another secret for Raymond to keep. One glance back at his father's house and Raymond started running again. He ran past Gruder's, an old upholstery company, and Trudor Albright, a small, worn convenience store, all the way to the Trotwood Recreation Center, six miles further into the city. Houses were larger in Trotwood than they were in Dayton. Lawns filled with flowers that swayed in the wind. Neighborhoods were quieter, too. As a boy, when his father drove him through Trotwood on the way to the Salem Mall, Raymond told himself that this is where his parents and he would have moved to and lived had his mother not fallen in love with another man, had she stayed. Raymond sat in the bleachers at the recreation center watching an intramural basketball game for well over half an hour till he felt certain Malcolm had in a rare respite drunk himself into a modicum of civility. When he turned over his wrist and saw that it was after 5 o'clock, he ran every step of the six miles back home. The living room was empty. Raymond heard a noise akin to the rise and fall of a buzzsaw. He frowned toward the stairs and mumbled, He's asleep. While he exited the living room and entered his bedroom, ESPN was still on. He went straight to his closet and pulled out his favorite pair of black nylon dress pants, a crisp white button-down shirt, and a tie. Fifteen minutes later, he showered, dressed, and standing in front of his bedroom mirror. His father was drunk. That he knew. It always went this way. Every night. Like a religious habit, he spent his childhood watching his father drink half a bottle of whiskey every night after he arrived home from work. When he was a little boy, he sat across from Malcolm at the kitchen table, swinging his legs back and forth like a pendulum clock, watching Malcolm turn a shiny glass bottle up until it reached empty. He always brought a toy into the kitchen with him then, a race car or a plastic airplane. He pushed the toy back and forth across the table and sang out, boom, boom, but he never took his eyes off of his father. It was a time gone, like cement, down into Raymond's psyche. But that was years ago. Since then, Raymond had gotten into a few fist fights and had gone on more than one stolen car joy ride with neighborhood boys he'd hoped would take him in as a good friend, but who never did. He dodged cops when they knocked on the door last spring. He just returned up from school. Mercy abounding, Malcolm was still at work. 
With a stiff blue cap squarely atop their heads, the cops questioned Raymond about the robbery at a nearby technical station. A wrong for Raymond, burst out of a last-ditch effort to gain a neighborhood friend, but now a source of pain and regret. Raymond's academic and athletic reputations convinced the cops that he was innocent. His refusal to rat out Joey and Stanley kept them from going to prison for the third time in less than two years. Never mind that Joey and Stanley kicked his butt when he was a kid until he bore new bruises. One's not put there by Malcolm. Never mind that cops badge them pounding Malcolm's living room table and promising, Ray, if you tell us what part Joey and Stanley play in that ice, we'll make sure nothing happens to you and we'll go light on them. Raymond didn't tell. If not for him, Joey wouldn't be waxing his car right now. And Stanley wouldn't be standing around trying to find something interesting to do. Despite the run-in with the law of Malcolm's drunken rages and verbal assaults that burst forth into outright physical beatings when Raymond reached puberty, Raymond had found a way to stay alive. He had made it to 17. He was running a brush across the top of his hair when the phone rang. Hello? Ray? Raymond Clark? Speaking. The man laughed. Big night for you. Raymond placed the brush atop his dresser. Who is this? You'll come to recognize my voice soon enough, the man joked. Coach Carter? Coach Reginald Carter? Yes, one of the cars. Congratulate you on graduation night. Have a good time, son. Look forward to seeing you on campus in what, one, two weeks? Yeah, Raymond nodded. Soon. Congratulations again, Ray. You deserve it. Heard you did better than good this year. Heard you did great. Thanks. Raymond opened his hand and watched the receiver fall gently against his cradle. A bird squawked outside his window, and he stared across his room at nothing in particular. He couldn't count the number of calls he received from college tracking field scouts over the last two years. He told his father about none of the calls. When Malcolm pushed and demanded, where are you going to school next year, boy? Raymond always told him what he knew he wanted to hear. He always looked right at his father and told him, Ohio State. With the phone dead and Coach Carter's voice gone, Raymond returned to the living room and fell on the sofa in silence. The front door was open. Through the screen door, warm summer air carried the scent of fried pork chops, chicken and hamburger from neighboring houses into the living room. Because Malcolm's kitchen table was bare and the refrigerator held only beer, wine coolers, a bowl of two-week-old broccoli, a pine of cottage cheese, and a celery stalk, Raymond served himself an evening meal through his nose. As if he could get full on the smell of food, he tilted his head back and inhaled in long, slow breaths. In the living room, the second hand on the battery-operated Ingram wall clock ticked and slid forward, ticked and slid forward. Soon Raymond had the phone in his hand again. Yo, Paul, he said to his high school track teammate, the one guy who gave them good athletic competition, someone he considered a real good friend. When are you leaving for the convention center? Five minutes, man. You know we have to be there an hour before the ceremony starts. I'm running late as it is. He paused. You need a ride? Can you swing by and get me on your way? My mom and dad are driving. I mean, man, please, help me out, he sighed. Even though I got my license a year ago, you know my dad's not going to let me drive his Camaro. Your pops ain't coming. Your Paul, homie, Raymond begged. All right, all right. The Dayton Convention Center was packed. 400 students, their purple and white caps and gowns, making them the final point of attention, filled in front of the main auditorium. A mass of parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins sat in the raised seats at the back of the room. The program started with a slew of speeches, enough to make the students wriggle in their seats. Over time, the evening began to take on an unwanted hue. A stale fatigue came into the air, started to make the graduation ceremony feel boring. Then a good thing happened. The principal, Bernard Jones, approached the microphone, and everyone in the auditorium set up. And now, Principal Jones said, it's time to hand out the diplomas. Cheers went up and drowned Principal Jones' voice. Like confetti that had been tossed toward the ceiling, it was a long time before the cheers came down. It was 8 o'clock. Raymond told himself not to, but he turned partway and glanced over his shoulder. It was as if he'd suddenly been plagued with dementia because he forgot the years of abuse heaped upon him with Malcolm's calloused hands. He wanted Malcolm to walk through the convention center doors, sober and real proud-like. He wanted Malcolm to be glad to call him his son. To the students, as I call out your name, please stand and make your way onto the stage. Principal Jones flipped through a stack of stapled papers 
Then he puts his mouth close to the microphone and says slowly, Sharon Appleseed. A long round of applause, whistling, and way to go, pierced the air. It went on like that for more than an hour until all but two students had received their diploma. Raymond and Janice Thompson. A bright 16-year-old sat in a wheelchair to the spinal bifida. Principal Jones sang Janice's praises. Hers had been a stellar academic career right from the start. She's earned her way onto the honor roll ever since the seventh grade. She was voted girl state by our finest instructors. She has won three presidential academic citations. And Principal Jones laughed. I'm sure her parents appreciate this most. She has earned a full scholarship to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. Principal Jones' hand went out. Ladies and gentlemen, he beamed, please stand and congratulate the class of 1984's salutatorian Janice Thompson. Janice pushed the wheelchair toward the stage, and everyone stood and applauded wildly amid the swell of noise and a sea of people. Raymond looked over his shoulder and searched every face for Malcolm. His gaze darted in a crazed fashion. Then he felt a tap on his shoulder. It was his friend Paul. They sat next to each other. Yo, man, is your pops coming? Raymond turned away from Paul, faced the stage, and stood tall, head up, shoulders back. When Paul tapped him again, he jerked his shoulders hard and shrugged him off. The auditorium grew quiet. And now it's time for us to bestow the top honor. Principal Jones smiled before he said, This young man has earned high commendations academically and athletically. In short intervals, Paul, several members of the track team, and Raymond's high school track coach turned and looked to the back of the auditorium toward the entrance doors. They prayed for Malcolm to show. Damn, Paul muttered when he turned around and faced the stage for the eighth time. He bumped shoulders with the guy who stood next to him. That's who ain't coming. He lowered his head in his voice. Race pops ain't coming. This young man has earned all city, all county, all state and top national honors in cross country and track and field. In fact, twice he's been listed as the top high school model in the country by Sports Illustrated and Track and Field News. He has earned four presidential academic citations. He's been on the honor roll since the seventh grade. Principal Jones scanned the auditorium for Malcolm. When he didn't see him, he spoke slower. He started to make things up in the hopes that time will become Raymond's friend. I remember when he first came to Baker. He was a scared young man, but not anymore. He pursed his lips and gave Raymond a nod. He's ready to take advantage of the full scholarship his academic achievements have gained him. Principal Jones glanced at the doors. A few students and several parents squirmed in their seats. Some police people glanced at their watches as if to say, come on, he has maintained a 4.0 grade average since the ninth grade. He hasn't missed a day of school since the third grade. The doors demanded his attention again, but no one came through them. Ladies and gentlemen, please congratulate Baker High School's class of 1984 valedictorian Raymond Clark. Paul clapped into his hands thumb. A few students stood in their seats and hollered, Go, Ray! Before long, a chant went up. All the students pumped their fists in the air and shouted, Raymond! Raymond! Raymond's heart beat wildly in his chest. He clamped his teeth down against his bottom lip and gelled the rising emotion. He extended his hand when he neared Principal Jones' side. Well done, Principal Jones told him as he handed him his diploma. He patted Raymond's back. You did a fine job, son. He shook his head. A fine job. The chain lock was on the front door when Raymond got home that night. He jiggled the chain and tried to get it to slide open. When that didn't work, he walked to the back of the house and tried to open the rear door, the one leading to the backyard. He cursed as he realized the chain lock was on the back door as well. Then he looked for an opening. He was in luck. The kitchen window was ajar just enough to allow him entry. He grunted and pushed out. The screen door didn't even bang when it landed in the sink. He crawled through the window like a thief. When he reached the stairs, he saw a flicker of light coming from the second floor. Dad, he called out softly. Then louder as he made his way up the stairs. Dad, a newly pressed blue striped suit coat hung across the chair in the corner of his father's bedroom. The television was turned down so low, it sounded like it was humming. Dad! The bed was empty, covers bunched together near the foot. The shade to the room's one lamp was to it as if someone had punched it. Dad! Raymond walked across the hall. He started to scream. 
Dad! He ran back down the stairs. Dad! He screamed as he made his way through the house. He saw the shadow curled and bent like an old man at his bed's edge. Silence was his escort into his own room. Malcolm stood slowly. His body leaned right from his shoulders to his ankles. His hands were clenched. His eyes were slits. Why didn't you tell me, he demanded. His hands and his arms and legs quaked. He took heavy Frankenstein-like steps toward Raymond. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? When no more than a few inches separated them, Raymond saw the red in his father's eyes. Malcolm stepped forward again, and this time Raymond stepped back, prepared to duck. Tell you what, he stammered. Fear had gone into his body. He felt like instead of blood, electricity was coursing through his veins. Why didn't you tell me? What? What, Dad? Raymond screamed. Tell you what? Malcolm took one last step forward. Then he thrust his hands open and threw bits of paper around Raymond's face. The paper fell against Raymond's nose, his mouth. Why didn't you tell me you were graduating tonight? Raymond's body shook. He turned and shook, looked for a chair, the bed, someplace to sit down. After all I've done for you, he cried. You tore up the ladder. You, you, you just walked off and left me upstairs asleep, he shouted and slurred. You knew, Raymond said. I thought you'd just come. I couldn't be late. I had to go. And we both know how mean you can be when I wake you up. Oh, Malcolm grunted. He took a swipe at Raymond's face but lost his balance only grazed his nose. I wanted you there, Raymond tried. I looked for you. Malcolm balled his hands and raised it. This time his hand landed in the center of Raymond's forehead. Just now Raymond hated his father enough not to be afraid of him. One heart of motion swapped out for another. Again and again, Malcolm says, landed across Raymond's nose, his shoulders, his chest. Malcolm was so inebriated, his fists fell away almost as soon as they found the spot. Who did it, Ray? He openly wept. Who fed you? Huh? Who clothed you? Huh? Who made sure you got to that damn school? Huh? He went to point at his chest, but ended up leaning back so far he fell across the bed. Huh? He asked again when he sat partly up. Not your mother. She left when you were just a kid. Who? He demanded. Who? He stood in the street. Who took care of you? You did, Raymond said. His teeth were clenched so tight his jaws ate. You better believe it me, Malcolm began. He didn't finish. The bed caught him seconds before vomit spewed out of his mouth. Raymond stood by the door with his white button shirt and tie still on. Then he came back into the room, used the hem of his shirt to wipe vomit off his father's mouth, and tucked his father into his bed. He spent the night on the living room sofa. ESPN hummed in the background. He looked up at the ceiling and wondered if he should call Coach Carter first thing in the morning, tell him he wasn't going to come to university after all, because he had to stay home and take care of his sick father. A middle-aged man who had not started to drink until his wife left him or has been professional football player when Raymond was only two years old. Or he wondered why he stood up at the ceiling. Should I just go hundreds of miles away from here? And that's the end of Chapter 1. I'll briefly start Chapter 2, and I want to go into some tips and advice, my dog, no matter what happens, I guess didn't join us today. <laughs> Checking again, no, I guess didn't join today. Um, and I'll just put a note out to her publicist. That's the second time she's sent a guest. And I, as a publicist, I don't blame the guest because I didn't speak to them. Yeah, uh, follow there. Yeah, follow there. So I will start this thought at Chapter 2, and it says, at 9 o'clock the following morning, Malcolm woke with a numbing hangover, the remains of last night's potent whiskey. His face was washed, yet unshaven. Stubble circled his chin. Ray, where's your help? He growled as he steadied his way down the stairs. Raymond leaned forward on the living room sofa. I put Malcolm waved him off. He leaned across the kitchen table and unscrewed the top of a bottle of still, still server and gulped the liquor until it burned in his throat. 
Seconds later, he entered the living room and flung his hand out at Ray. Said, where's your help? You eat like a damn animal. I'm not going to pay to feed you. Raymond shoved his hand to the bottom of his pants pocket. When he pulled it out again, he pushed two crisp $20 bills at Malcolm. Money he'd earned from a weekend job at the Salem Mall. Be here when I get back, Malcolm demanded. He snatched the bills out of Raymond's hand. Money, as it often did, worked like magic on him, and he softened. You want something? Nah. Seconds later, he was out the front door. Don't go nowhere, he called back. Be here to help carry the groceries in. When Raymond didn't respond, he stopped. Ray, yeah, I'll be here. Raymond listened to the red and black Chevy Camaro. The car he'd spent a failed year begging Malcolm to let him drive just once back out of the side drive. Then he jogged into his bedroom and pulled his sports bag from beneath the bed. His hands were shaking. It all seemed so easy last night while he lay across the living room sofa, convincing himself to make his exit while Malcolm, as usual, shopped for scant groceries on a Saturday morning. He hadn't planned on being emotional. He was just going to grab his stuff and go. After years of abuse, he should be able to just leave, but his body was starting to feel tight, like thick ropes were in his shoulders, his back and in his throat. He'd felt this way too many times before when he was a boy hiding behind the circus. Damn it, he cursed while he ran his hand beneath the mattress then over the closet shelves. I didn't leave a trace, no letters from Coach Carter, no clear admission to him. He finally pronounced, Malcolm will never know where I am. He went into the living room and called a cat. He cursed when he looked up at the clock and saw it was 9.20. Malcolm bought so few groceries, even though the grocery store was more than 15 minutes from the house, he knew he'd be home before 10.30. Should I call for a cab sooner? He spent the next 20 minutes pacing the living room floor. When the driver pulled along the curb and honked the horn, Raymond ran toward the door. Then he turned back. He went into his bedroom and looked at the honor roll certificates nailed to the walls. Some of them were 10 years old. He gave, his gaze flipped across the track trophies, placed atop his bedroom dresser. An envelope lay beneath one of the trophies. Inside the envelope was a black and white photo of his mother. Raymond found the picture when he was in kindergarten. He'd been rummaging through the boxes in the basement when he discovered the photo. It was shoved on the bottom of a cardboard box that was so old it smelled of mildew. Love, Jennifer, was all that was scribed in the picture's bottom right corner. This time when Raymond looked at the picture, he saw it. His mother had the same wide nose and full lips he had. Her eyes were wide and dark brown like his, too. She's why he hates me, he told himself. I remind him of her. Raymond heard the cab driver honk the horn again. He thought about grabbing the envelope, but he left it beneath the trophy. Over the years, he pulled it out at least three to four times a month and looked at it. He imagined his mother as a warm, loving woman when he was a boy. Now all he felt was abandonment when he thought of her. Posters of Carl Lewis and Edwin Moses hung up the sides of the window. The television was off, but turned to ESPN. His blue terry cloth bathrobe hung over the closet door. Nah, his two pairs of dress pants, several pairs of socks, three sweaters, one dress shirt, underwear, track shoes, and two pairs of sweatpants were shoved inside the sports bag he carried over his shoulder. He wore, he wore the only other clothes he owned. When Raymond heard the cab driver lay on the horn, he hurried out the door. For 17 years, this had been home. Despite the abuse he'd suffered at his father's hands, the house's familiarity made him feel safe, but not safe enough to stay. He imagined that Malcolm was at Kroger arguing with the produce part about the color of the lettuce, one of the few food items he came home from store with. Raymond figured Malcolm thought I had a lettuce was all the produce a growing young man needed. He knew that if not for the many times he ate at Paul's house, he'd probably be malnourished. Except for Thanksgiving, Malcolm never brought home more than two bags of groceries a week. The bulk of his money went toward liquor. Raymond closed and locked the front door. Then he dropped his key inside the mailbox. A ghost haunted him. Pulled at him with so much force, it felt stronger than he was. It was a shadow of a boy who didn't want to leave, who wanted to stay and beg for his father to love him. On the sidewalk, and as if remains of decency remained in Malcolm and his relationship, had called to him. Raymond turned and looked back. The cab driver honked the horn and leaned toward the passenger window. Yo! In seven minutes, it would be 10 o'clock. Turning away from the house, Raymond stepped toward the cab. Where to, the driver asked as Raymond scooted across the back seat. The Fifth Avenue Greyhound bus station. You got it, the driver said as he pulled away from the curb. The cab bumped its way down the street. Despite his vow not to, Raymond kept glancing out the window. He saw Miss Nixon, a noisy neighbor who lived two houses down across the street, park her living room japes and glanced out onto the street. She stared at the cab while it went back. Raymond cursed. 
Hey, the cab driver's head peering into the rearview mirror and smiling at the red and white Ohio State T-shirt. Raymond glanced at the driver. Yeah. Aren't you that track star from Baker? Raymond chuckled. Yeah. Seconds later, he found out onto the street as he it passed Gooders, a place so forsaken. Raymond marveled that it was still open. The cab driver peered into the rearview mirror again. So you, so you graduated yesterday? Raymond gave a nod. Yeah. The volume in the cab driver's voice went up. Saw the write-up on your graduation in the paper. Yeah. You did good, man. Thanks. Makes the city proud. Raymond responded. Thanks. He did not at once. I appreciate that. Saw all those awards you won. You're standing around here on a national level, too. Unbeatable. That's what I say. While a driver drove, Raymond stared out the window at Joey and Stanley. Their hands were jammed to the bottoms of their pants pockets. Their heads were back. They leaned against the outside of Tudor Albright. The store's marred screen door slammed to a close when a customer entered it. Raymond laughed, and for a scant second, the driver stopped his incessant chatter. He leaned into a sharp right turn, staring the cab further away from Green Street. What's that? Yes, Raymond. Nothing. I was just thinking about two dudes I used to get into it with when we were younger. Two dudes I'm glad to be saying goodbye to. He laughed. They were back there standing outside an old building looking like they had nothing better to do. Hard to believe they used to be the coolest cats in town. Goes that way sometimes, the driver said. The driver and Raymond didn't speak another word the remainder of the trip. Every now and then they did glance at each other. They were strangers, and for the rest of the trip, while they absorbed themselves inside their separate thoughts, they stayed that way. Close to the center of town, the cab entered alongside the curb outside the Greyhound bus station. Raymond handed the driver $20, grabbed the sports bag, and climbed out. He moved fast enough to keep him turned around. He didn't have practice leaving. He wasn't good at it. He'd never done it before. As soon as he exited the cab, a gust of wind brushed down across his face. He almost stepped into the path of two adolescent boys, popping willies on the five-speed bikes and yelping to the, the lyrics to New Edition's song, Andy Girl, while they sped down the sidewalk. Years before, Joey, Stanley, and he held the Texaco gas station. Three of them used to ride their yard, sell bikes down Grease Street, popping willies. Their near-flat tires catching at cracks in the sidewalk. Raymond tugged on the bus station door and went inside. The lobby was more empty before. A few older women, their weight having ballooned as they aged, sat in the waiting area. Large shopping bags and suitcases were pushed close to the leg. Some children played hand games near the exit doors while their parents stood in one of the thick ticket lines. Several out-of-state university students milled about looking for something to do while they waited for the buses to pull up for loading. Raymond leaned across his long-service counter. Philadelphia, he said, as soon as the clerk looked up from her copy of the Dayton Daily News. Cincinnati Reds hammered Atlanta Braves with flash across the top of the sports page. Round ship, the clerk asked with a courteous smile. Raymond shook his head decidedly. No, he said. One way. I'm not coming back. Ever. Forty-five minutes later, he sat on a crowded Greyhound bus pondering his future. He turned away from the other riders and gazed out the dirty bus window. Most of the bumpy ride. Each mile the bus covered made his hometown of Dayton, the gas station holdup, and especially Malcolm a permanent piece of history, forever behind him. Fourteen hours into the trip, an army of insects was spotted across the large bus window, making it hard to see. Night had come across the sky. Hardly anyone talked now. Philadelphia, the driver announced. She jarred women away from sleep. Philadelphia, she said again. As the bus entered inside the terminal, Raymond stretched his tired, stiff limbs and stood. He peered out the bus window and admired Philadelphia's rising skyline. Images of Malcolm combing the neighborhood, screaming out his name. His thoughts racing, his heart pounding, rose in his mind. But he shook his head and pushed the images aside. He was in a new place now. He had a new home. Clean slate. And I'm going to stop there. That was midway through the second chapter of Love for Over Me. And we got about five minutes left in today's uh, off-the-shelf show. I do encourage you. That is just the very, very, very tip of the iceberg in this story. I, I mean, it's not even the top layer of icing on a little thick, thick, tall cake. There's so much more to come. And love over me. That's just the very, very tip of the start. <laughs> so I encourage you to get a copy of Love Over Me. Wow, you're for a ride, my friend. I encourage you to get a copy of Love Over Me. And you can get a copy, again, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes. 
offline, online, ebook copies, and a variety of ebook readers. An ebook at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can get it in print. How do you want it? You can get love for over me. And the cheapest I've seen is three dollars and three cents. Three oh three. An ebook is three ninety nine, but they I don't know if they have more variety of ebook readers than Amazon. They got loads that you can get it in. You can get it in PDF. If you don't have an ebook reader, get it in PDF and read it. You can get it in print. You don't need to go out and buy an ebook reader. If you have an ebook reader, you can buy it and get it downloaded. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. The only way to get that story and enjoy all of it is to go buy a copy of Love for Over Me today. You would never know what's all in that story unless you get a copy. I ain't going to tell it. <laughs> I'm not going to tell it all. You have to read it to find out what happened. There are more characters coming. More characters coming. More things happening. Wonderful, interesting folks and experiences. But at the end, I dare you not to cry. I dare you not to cry when we get to the end. Love, poor, oh. And don't we all want that? Don't we all want that? Tips I give as the last few minutes, and I go back again. Think about when an ideal comes to you for something you want. Think about the excitement that you feel. I used to looking for a job when some people were dating, getting married. The excitement of what is ahead when the ideals come behind us to help you get the steps to take to get. To get that dream, stay excited. Stay excited and and follow through those steps. Don't just be excited when an idea comes and you haven't received an idea on any action to take. And that action might not be so physical. It might be meditating, focusing, listening to deep meditation tapes. But I would dare say there's going to be some physical action, neither than a physical, it's a physical experience we're having. I dare say there's going to be some physical action. A lot of people stop there and they won't take the physical action. Take it and be excited about it, even if it takes months or years. I'm working on something that I've been working on right now for about eight months, and I'm still working on it, okay? Just keep keep, keep doing it. Keep taking those steps because something will happen. <laughs> Don't get tired. Stay encouraged. Whatever it is, the thing is. Whatever it is your dream is, stay encouraged. Woo, stay encouraged. Encourage yourself and keep taking the action. If something tells you to keep going, keep going, even if you've got to do it for years, because eventually something is going to break. Something is going to break through. Something will happen. Stay encouraged. If I don't say anything else to your friend, I'm saying when you know you're on the right path, when you know you're doing the right thing, stay on that path. Stay encouraged. Finish what you start when you know that what you started was a good thing. Finish what you start, even if it feels hard in the middle of it and you can't see the end. You're not going to see the end, just like reading left over me. I just read the start. You don't know about the middle. You don't know about the end. The only way to get that is to read the book. And I'm not trying to trick you. That's the only way. That's for any book. That's for any book. I don't care who wrote it. If you want the experience, you got to get to the middle and the end. you got to get it all. And that's for the things you're going after, too. I encourage you to get a copy of Love Over Me. I encourage you to write things down so you remember. I encourage you not to let opportunities pass you by. And, friend, I encourage you. I encourage you to stay encouraged and, and to take action, follow through on ideas you get and take action to bring about what you want. If it even takes decades, don't stop. Don't stop. And I'd love for you to share your story with me about how you stayed in there, you kept, you stayed on the path, you stayed in there, and what the end looked like for you because you took opportunities that came your way. You took action that you had to take. You stayed encouraged, and now you're seeing something come to pass 
Oh, my goodness. The people that do that, woo, the payoff. The payoff is huge. And I hope that you will be one of those people. I know I am. I hope that you will be. I want to thank you for staying here with us off the shelf today. As I always tell you, please tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, everybody to tune in off the shelf. Keep going. My phone is not working, my landline phone. So I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to get on my cell phone. I'm not using any excuse to quit. you got to keep going because I want to bring you great off-the-shelf shows. If i got to put something together because something changed at the last second, for you, I'm telling you it for myself, I will do that. So I encourage you to do that in your life. Don't let little odd things coming up stop you. What is your main goal? Keep going. Don't let nothing hinder you. Just keep going forward. Do that. Do that. Please do that. Please come back again next Saturday, 11 o'clock, off the shelf. You know we're going to be here. Ain't nothing going to stop us. 11 o'clock a.m., God willing, Eastern Standard Time. Tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, everybody, everybody. Tell people on social media. Email your friends. Tune in to off the shelf Saturday mornings, 11 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time, or New York City time for those of our listeners who tune in from outside of the United States. I thank you for being here. As I always tell you, you are so awesome. I wish you knew how awesome you were. You're so marvelous, so incredible, so amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. And please start to see your own awesomeness more and more and more. Go create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And go get a copy of Love for Over Me, you're going to be so glad you did. Bye for now.